Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Tristan Bruins, and welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast. Today's episode is titled, The Hidden History of Tap Dance Histories, and it is a doozy. So double knot your laces and tighten your screws, because away we go! There is a popular lament among tap dancers that there is so little published information regarding tap dance, especially its tumultuous and highly contested origins. For history books solely about, or mostly about, tap dance, you got Jazz Dance by Marshall and Gene Stearns, The Book of Tap by Jerry Ames and Jim Siegelman, Tap Roots by Mark Knowles, Tap Dance America by Constance Vallis Hill, What the Eye Hears by Brian Siebert, uh, the autobiographical works of Jane Goldberg, Brenda Buffalino, and others. That may sound like a lot, but it doesn't even take up a full shelf on the beige metal stacks on the 8th floor of Chicago's Harold Washington Public Library, where I love to spend copious amounts of time. Directly across from the meager tap section is the jazz and African-American dance section. And a lot of those books talk about tap dance. So if we add that to it, you got three shelves worth of books that mention tap. Although there is a whole shelf just for Fred Astaire biographies. So, all right, we'll bump it up to four. Now, when you think tap dance history books, I'm willing to bet a pair of J-Sams that you weren't considering tap dance syllabi. Yes, those instructional books for the DIY at-home tapper. I would often pass over them without a second thought, but one day, curiosity got the better of me, and I wondered if, by some slim chance, there may be something interesting in these texts besides awkward descriptions of movement, convoluted diagrams that look like, like ancient pagan symbology, and a requisite list of terminology that isn't how my teacher taught me. So I cracked one open, and then another, and then another, and then a dozen more, and what I found did not disappoint me. Or maybe it did, or, well, maybe a little of both, but definitely threw me for a loop. Printed tap dance history has not, and has never been, limited to the comprehensive phone book-sized tomes that we are used to getting once a decade or so. Oh no! Tap dance histories have been in print steadily and continuously, and mass-distributed, at least in the United States, for nearly a century by way of the tap dance syllabus. And guess what? 
most of the syllabi I've found include short tap dance history sections, and they're all different from each other, some as different as night and day, or black and white, racial pun intended. Of course, any stab at tap dance history is an attempt to explain the partial unknown, and must abound with a plethora of maybes, and perhapses, and it could have been thatses, but these separate histories range from merely contradicting each other to, some might say, well, me might say, as possibly upholding and reinforcing white supremacist historical revisionism. Or maybe I'm being too harsh. After all, it is the author's job to gather the puzzle pieces together, which never comes as a full set, and construct the picture to the best of their ability. I'll let you be the judge. The histories of TAP published in these syllabi are, to me, products of 20th and 21st century liberal ideals, that an individual contains inherent rights to an egalitarian autonomy. Or to put it simply, you do you, bro. When it comes to liberal legalism regarding race, these ideals were set in the minds of U.S. Americans in such landmark court cases as Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, where the Supreme Court ruled that all races should be treated equally, although separately, and in Brown v. the Board of Education in 1954, when the Supreme Court challenged the law of racial segregation in schools, which ultimately led to its formal abolishment. These two rulings made such an impact that most everyone in the states if not also abroad, has the idea that everyone should be treated equally under the law and that it is wrong to discriminate the accessibility to spaces and services based on race. To begin, let's look at the elementary level tap dance instruction book, Tap Dancing, published in 2001 and written by Susan Hebach as an example of the average tap history found in these instructional books post the year 2000. In short, Hebuck writes that tap dance generally consists of English and Irish step dances mixed with African dance, rhythm, and improvisation. Here is a summary of Hebuck's tap history. Beginning in the 1900s, tap dance was popular in vaudeville, with Bill Robinson being one of the most famous tap dancers, if not most famous people in the world. By the 1950s, tap was in decline, but picked up again in the 1970s. Today, tap dance can be seen in movies, on television, and in musical theater. Styles of tap dance are boiled down to the genres of music that they are performed to. Classical music for classical tap, show tunes for Broadway style, any music for rhythm tap, and contemporary hip-hop to describe Savion style. The rest is mostly a picture book of basic technique, but I believe that Hebach provides a good example of an introduction to tap history. While it's not perfect, it is only seven pages long, so huzzah and kudos to a job well done, Miss Hebach. I also looked at the book Tap Dancing Methods and Curriculum Design by Gail Casing and Daniel M. J., published in 2003. Casing and J. begin by saying that tap dance comes from, quote, African American, Native American, English, and Irish cultures, end quote. Boom! Right off the bat, African, and even includes Native American influence before the English and Irish. Now, this is rare, but don't get used to it. Casing and Jay write, quote, 
Tap styles include shuffle, syncopated buck, wing, and styles from other cultures and eras, end quote, though no additional cultures or eras are named. They also write that, quote, tap dance blends the Irish jig and clog dancing, American soft shoe, and African-American-based steps, end quote. Now this term, steps, is often used to describe the African contribution to tap dance. But why? My guess is because research is hard to find on specific and anachronistic regional African dance styles. But it's also a little lazy, glossing over other key influences from Africa, like polyrhythms, indigenous musical phrasing, uh, and syncopation and improvisation, like how Hebach mentioned in, in her history. But yes, steps are important too, I guess. The book then mentions that African slaves were denied the use of their drums and in turn developed forms of body percussion to accompany their dancing. The date when that happened, the, the, you know, the slave laws of 1740 are not mentioned, but the book does mention the dancer William Henry Lane known as Juba, who is described as, quote, an 18th century African-American performer, end quote. Lane was not alive in the 18th century. He lived in the 19th century, born sometime in the early 1800s, like 1820-something, and dying around 1853. The 18th century is not the 1800s, okay? Look, Jesus was born on year zero in the first century, so year 100 A.D., would be the 2nd century, uh, year 200, the 3rd century, and so on. I get that keeping dates correct is super hard, but when you're going by centuries, the book does mention minstrelsy in the U.S. and in Europe, which if you've heard episode 2 of the Gasps podcast, you'll know that a nod to international minstrelsy is also pretty rare to hear. So one point for that. Casing and Jay offer an egalitarian list of black and white tap dancers. Black dancers include Bill Robinson, King Rastus Brown, Honey Coles, Charlie Atkins, John Bubbles, and each are given a nice one-sentence introduction. And there are even passages comparing their styles against each other's, which is a nice touch. Next is a list of the great pale male tap dancers, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Paul Draper, and Dick Van Dyke? What's Dick Van Dyke doing in here? I'm only getting indignant because Dick Van Dyke never considered himself anywhere near a great tap dancer. As he adamantly stated both times I heard him talk at the LA Tap Fest circa the mid-2000s. I swear, people keep putting Dick Van Dyke and great tap dancer in the same sentence, but nobody ever asked Dick Van Dyke what he thought about it. Couldn't they have thrown in a Gene Nelson or a Ray Bolger instead? I don't know. Casing and Jay's history culminates with credit being given to Gregory Hines for causing a renewed interest in the art form by way of the films Cotton Club, White Knights, and Tap. And the book also mentions companies like Tap Dogs, movies like Tappin', which includes no additional info on the movie, so I don't know what they're talking about. The book also mentions musicals like Juba, and bringing the noise, bringing the funk, for reinforcing Tap's current popularity. So a little more in-depth than Hebach's Tap Dancing, and five pages shorter, might I add. But as you can see, as it gets more detailed, the mistakes become more egregious. 
Still, if these two were all you had, you could do worse. They hit the broader points and give you some names to look up, even if they are not always in the correct century. <laughs> I believe that both Hibok and Casing and Jay are indicative of what you can expect from a tap history in the 21st century tap dance syllabus book. But now let us travel back in time to that long ago, nigh forgotten era of the 20th century. The book titled Tap Dancing, Techniques, Routines, Terminology was written by Constance Atwater and published in 1971 and includes a history of tap that is about two paragraphs long. The book begins with, quote, All countries have some form of dance that is immediately associated with that country or is in a sense considered the national dance, end quote. Atwater goes on to mention Irish jig, Scottish Highland fling, Russian and French ballet, and Slavic polkas, but no mention of any African, African-American, Native American, or Latin influences at all. Atwater also writes, quote, With the founding of our country, a variety of dance forms arrived on our shores. It was with true American ingenuity that, from these various forms, a new and exciting means of expression was created and styled, completely different and refreshing, end quote. Of course, I'm of the belief that the thing that is so different and refreshing that Atwater is referring to is indeed the contribution of the cultures stated in the more modern histories that I just talked about and missing from Atwater's. In all fairness, the next paragraph begins with, this book has been written with the layman in mind. Quote, end quote. So I understand the need for being concise, but come on, Slavic polkas? Really? I'm getting a little perturbed here. Moving on. Basic Tap Dancing by Diana Washburn, published in 1981. Right away, you notice two popular tap dance history tropes. The appropriation by proximity hypothesis, that tap dance was created by multiracial poor people being forced to interact with each other, thus viewing each other's cultural dance forms and borrowing from them, and the I don't see color, I mean, uh, the we all got rhythm theory, oh, excuse me, which states that if it was created in the United States, then it is classified as an American art form with no need to bring all those racial labels of who made what and where and when or why into it. As Washburn writes, quote, This indigenous American art form, equal parts Irish jig, English clog dance, and African-based steps, developed in urban ghettos in the 19th century when immigrants and blacks intermingled, end quote. And there are those African steps again. Listen, white people knew about African-based song and dance. Saying African steps, to me, is infantile, and putting Ireland and England, two countries, at the same level as Africa, which is a continent, is inaccurate and misleading. I had to get that off my chest. It just, it's not, they're not the same thing, Africa and countries. Washburn also writes, quote, Developed into a real art form by black and Irish vaudevillians, 
then popularized by Hollywood greats like Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, tap is now an integral part of the musical stage, as evidenced by hits like A Chorus Line, as well as nostalgia shows such as 42nd Street and Sugar Babies. Sure, there is that one tap number in A Chorus Line, the goofiest number in the whole production, but it is catchy. The 42nd Street Washburn is referring to is the 1980s stage revival directed by Gower Champion. And uh, Sugar Babies was a vaudeville-style review of vignettes starring Ann Miller and Mickey Rooney. Washburn mentions black and Irish vaudevillians, though not that they were on separate theater circuits, or which shade of ass color the circuits were tougher on. This short and simple history is almost like a throwaway part, nestled in the first page of the introduction. Just a starting point, really. But if I may borrow from homeopathic ideology for a second, what if less really is more? Looking for a simple and easy definition of tap dance? Well, my busy friend, have I got something convenient for you. I wonder, which history are lay people going to read? A two-paragraph one or a 50-page one? We can't even be bothered to read the terms of service on just about everything we buy, so I'm betting on the former. And thus concludes the happy part of the program, because, oh baby, here's where it gets real. Real bad, that is. Set your faces to indignant cringe, and let's dive right in. I present to you the complete tap dance book written by Dr. Anne Schley Dugan and revised by Evelyn Triplett. Excellent name for a tap dancer, Triplett. Originally published in 1977, the history here is much different than those I have found common in other tap dance syllabi of the 1970s or the 80s, 90s, thousands, and thousand tens. Among them, there is a certain level of factual uniformity Good for a history, I think. But Dugan and Triplett's history of tap dance presents a very different narrative than any that we've heard thus far. One that, I believe, and will try to prove, is an example of systemic racist oppression in tap dance. Plus, there's a double twist ending. So stay with me on this one. Who was Anne Dugan? Nancy to her friends... She was the Dean of the College of Health, Physical Education, and Recreation at the Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas, and served on faculty a total of 30 years, and was the first woman to become a Dean of a school in that department. On April 7, 1973, prior to her retirement, legions of colleagues, students, friends, and family celebrated Anne Schley Dugan Appreciation Day on the TWU campus. She was known for teaching a class called, get this, The History and Philosophy of Dance, which is exactly what I claim that this show does. But Anne Dugan already beat me to it 70 years ago. By all accounts, she sounds like an incredible educator and person, which is what makes her account of the history of tap dance so disappointing. It will come as no surprise 
that Dugan had tremendous respect for tap dance and especially for its potential to bestow on the participant good physical health. Dugan also clearly states that the aim of this book is for educational purposes with the intention for it to be used in schools to supplement their already existing folk dance modules in gym classes. You remember those. Actually, don't remember those. That, that was like the worst part of gym. Anyways, this next bit really throws me for a loop because by the author's own admission in the foreword to the book, Dugan and Triplet believe that tap dance and clog dance are both types of the same thing. Writing, quote, clog and tap dance, tap dancing, are both types of the same thing, having their common root in the so-called step dances of an earlier age. The author feels that no sharp line of demarcation can be drawn between them, end quote. Dugan and Triplett do differentiate between clog and tap dance, writing, quote, If a differentiation between clogging and tap dancing is to be made in our educational institutions, the author feels that the term clogging should be applied to those dances of a simpler nature, a more even timing, and a decidedly folk quality. Tap dancing, on the other hand, is a term applicable to a more professionalized and intricate type of dancing. Emphasis is on the variety of rhythms secured through rapid manipulation of the feet. There may or may not be a folk quality to the tap dance, but the time is usually syncopated and a great many more tap sounds are achieved to each measure of music than those tapped out in the slower, more even rhythms of clogging. To say... However, exactly where tap dancing begins and clogging ends is a difficult matter and cannot be settled arbitrarily, end quote. Now, I can't speak on the points of differing tempos and rhythmic complexity as those are incredibly subjective statements not grounded in any factual data and seem to be 100% the opinion of the author or authors, but what do Dugan and Triplet mean by folk quality? Aren't all people folk and that anything they produce inherently contains this quality? So what folk are Dugan and Triplet talking about? Well, the Irish, of course. Dugan writes, quote, The term clogging arose through the use of stiff wooden shoes or clogs, which were a characteristic accessory of the early Irish peasant costume. Clogs were introduced in this country by our early settlers for use in inclement weather. They appeared later in their professional capacity, when Irishmen, who were among our first professional tap dancers, wore them for the execution of their tap rhythms. Among the first popular tap dances performed in this country was the Lancashire Clog, so-called because of its origin and because of the wooden shoes warned for its execution, end quote. A couple of things. I won't knock the clogs and dance shoes bit. That's true. Bill Robinson wore a form of wooden clog. It is also true that there were a very high proportion of Irish immigrants in England, in particular Lancashire County and the port city of Liverpool during the, mid, uh, the early to mid-19th century. So it's possible that the Lancashire clog usually associated with 
English clog dancing comes from Irish-born or second-generation Irish-English immigrants. Ah, but I promised you a twist, did I not? The book has two tap histories. Apparently, it was published more than once. Three editions that I know of, and possibly published way sooner. I couldn't find any evidence to... I couldn't find, like, a copy from 1945 or 47, but I've seen that date pop up. So maybe it is from, like, way earlier, which might explain some of the stuff I'm about to tell you, but... I know for a fact it was published multiple times in 1977. On subsequent printings, a new introduction by Dugan and Triplett, which appears before the book's original foreword, was included and is like the original history, but on steroids. <laughs> Besides reaffirming the English and Irish influences in tap dance, there are also other cultures listed as possible contributors, writing that, quote, we realize immediately that the rhythmic beats of the feet of the dancers of primitive tribes constituted an essential and significant element, end quote. And they back up that statement by also writing, quote, This observation is borne out by analysis of our American Indian dances with their stamps, step hops, and more intricate foot patterns yielding various rhythmic sounds, end quote. Aside from calling Native Americans primitive, this is also believed to be true and is worthy of inclusion. Other cultures and ethnicities are mentioned by Dugan and Triplett as well, like the percussive folk dances of Russia, Spain, and Mexico. With all of this inclusivity, there has to be a section on the African-American influence in tap dance. Let me see. Um, uh, ah, here it is. They write, quote, Negro dances are a part of America's own folk background. Huh? See, there you go. These, however, are by no means indigenous to our country. End quote. The writing continues. Quote, There is no doubt, but what the breakdowns, cakewalks, and other dances developed by Negroes had their beginnings in the earlier step dances of these older countries. They are sometimes called, therefore, pseudo-Negro dances. The music for some of them is fundamentally akin to that of the most ancient Elizabethan jigs and was brought to America by dancers from the British Isles. End quote. They then reference William Henry Lane, a.k.a. Master Juba, and credits him with the, quote, fusion of characteristic Afro-American steps with the typical movements of the European jig and clog. Thus, the technique which is the basis of modern tap dancing was initiated. End quote. So if African Americans aren't responsible for the foot technique, the movement, or the music, why include them at all? The final nail in the tap equals clog theory is stated by a comparative proclamation. Quote, Clog is to tap dancing, therefore, what natural is to modern dance, an immediate predecessor to designate this type of rhythmic training in educational institutions, end quote. Is natural dance really the linear precursor to modern dance? What is natural dance, anyways? 
My wife is a modern dancer, professional modern dancer, one hell of a modern dancer. She could not explain this to me. And she went to school partly for dance. Ah, but canny listeners will remember that I said there was a double twist. And there absolutely is. A horrifying, or at least very disappressing, disappressing, uh, disappointing and depressing. Ooh, that's a new word, disappressing. We're keeping it in there. A very disappressing double twist. Flip to page nine of the complete tap dance book, and you too can learn the Harlem Shuffle. I think you know where I'm going with this. The heading reads, quote, Dancers should feel characteristic rhythmic movements of the American Negro, end quote. And it comes complete with costume and makeup instructions for, that's right, you guessed it, a youth's blackface minstrel number. It reads, quote, men wear overalls, ragged shirts, bandana handkerchiefs about the necks. Black woolly wigs can be made by using the tops of a black stocking as a base with wool yarn closely cropped, covering it. Negro wigs may be purchased inexpensively for any from from any reliable costume house. Straw hats may or may not be worn. End quote. The description continues, quote, Women wear full skirts, aprons, shawls over shoulders, bandana handkerchiefs, knotted around the corners for head coverings. Burnt cork over cold cream, very important, you guys. Make sure your burnt corks over cold cream. Trust them on this. May be used for blacking purposes. But a regular Negro makeup sold by any customer will be found more desirable. Brown or black gloves, according to color of makeup, may be used to avoid blacking the hands. The book even tells which occasions are appropriate for the Harlem Shuffle. Appropriate occasions include school or club minstrel shows, musical comedies, or programs with Negro, colonial, or southern plantation settings. Also listed are certain holidays like Thanksgiving and Negro Emancipation Day? What? In other words, the book is telling people it is appropriate to perform blackface-inspired tap routines to celebrate Juneteenth. Now listen, I have heard much in my time, but never could I say that there has been a time where I've heard it all. Ladies and gentlemen, that time is now past. In a merciful act of fate, the accompanying sheet music to the Harlem Shuffle contains no lyrics. When people mention the systemic problems of how race is viewed in the United States, This is what they are talking about. In part, the cultural normativity to commodify race by white citizens. People uh, were putting on blackface costumes and minstrel shows well into the later parts of the 20th century. I have found plenty of evidence to suggest such practices were happening in Chicago at least as late as 1951 through the Chicago Tribune archives where I found an article that reads, quote, members of the Chicago Real Estate Board figuratively talked themselves black in the face last night. (laughs) Barf. It was a dress rehearsal for the Cotton Blossom Minstrels, 
a show to be staged in blackface tonight and tomorrow night in the dining room of the board building, 105 Madison Street. Many of the city's most prominent real estate men will perform in the annual show, end quote. Add real estate conventions to that list of appropriate occasions, I guess, for the Harlem Shuffle. This is what we mean by saying that racist oppression is systemic. How blackface minstrelsy was adopted as a cultural pastime. Anne Dugan was the head of a whole college department. Did she perhaps use her own books to help teach her classes? Did she use this book? I believe that she did, evidenced by a single comment by an Amazon customer named JKRN, all lowercase, quote, I've wanted this book for more than 50 years. I went to college, Texas Women's University, where this author was dean of the School of Health, PE, and Recreation, and actually performed some of the dances in the book, end quote. If the complete tap dance book and other tap dance syllabi are taught in schools, are they considered textbooks? And if they are, are they open to the same scrutiny that textbooks are in general? Ray Girk, a professor from Tufts University, in an article titled American Textbooks, Perspectives on Public Controversy and Censorship, writes that, quote, educational knowledge of the type presented in textbooks will tend to reflect the values, attitudes, and beliefs predominant in our society. The fact that majority viewpoints remain central in the context of textbooks is a continuing concern among those who clamor for unbiased text representing ideas compatible with minority positions, end quote. Girk also writes that, quote, published accounts tell of repeated instances of pressure groups and individuals seeking to contain or redirect school knowledge to correspond to their perception of truth. Groups exerting strong influence upon textbook knowledge include political lobbies and parent groups, conglomerates in the publishing industry, other business and industrial groups, religious and anti-religious groups, ethnic groups, professional organizations in education, state and federal governments. I mean, he goes on. End quote, I mean, sorry. In other words, the complete tap dance book didn't publish itself, and there would have been a lot of other people who had to sign off on this for it to get into schools. Uh, I do not have the data on exactly what schools it went to. I'm not exactly sure how to find that out, but something to think about, right? Take a look. Go to your local elementary school, right, who hasn't, like, got a new book since 1977. Take a look. LeGarrett J. King, an associate professor of social studies at the University of Missouri, in an article titled, A Narrative to the Colored Children in America, writes, quote, Textbooks reinforced that African Americans were subpersons because of their childlike dispositions and incapacities of self-control and judgment. Therefore, the process of racialization and denying personhood through textbooks presented an ontological truth of the innate inferiority of African Americans, end quote. And that's what Dugan and Triplett do by neutralizing or denigrating the African-American influence in tap dance. Heck, that's what most tap dance history books do, by placing countries on par with continents. What semantics do when names are changed and histories are erased. Devaluing a culture's music, movement, aesthetic, philosophy, and the positive influence it has had on ourselves down to merely 
steps. But these short histories are better now, right? Yes, I did praise the first two books that we talked about, but there is still something wrong. Giving equal credit to each of Tap Dance's cultural forebearers is simply not true. For the fact that nobody can know, minus the invention of the time machine. These histories are written from a utilitarian approach, similar to the utility-based arguments found in uh, the federal government's implementation of affirmative action policies following the Civil Rights Act of 1964, argued on the grounds that increased representation of minorities will be useful to society. Civil rights professor and author Richard Delgado, in an article titled The Imperial Scholar, Reflections on a Review of Civil Rights Literature, writes that, quote, emphasizing utility as the justification for affirmative action has a number of significant consequences. It enables the writer to concentrate on the present and the future and to overlook the past. The past becomes irrelevant. One just asks where things are now and where we ought to go from here, end quote. Delgado also states that to base scholarly writing solely on its social utility, quote, ignores the right of minority communities to be made whole and the obligation of the majority to render them whole, end quote. So when people say or write things like this indigenous American art form or that tap is equal parts Irish jig, English clog dance, and African bass steps, or even just listing a handful of countries and continents in a row, to me, it, it feels like these cultures are just shoehorned in or strategically rearranged, but based more on feeling than on fact. Another, you know, liberal trait that means well, but could be, in my opinion, improved upon. How would you do that? Well, just tell the truth. That poor and, by our modern standards, archaic record-keeping combined with racial and ethnic prejudice, have obfuscated, diminished, and negated the historical contributions of many of tap dance's prominent progenitors and regions of origin. In short, just say that we don't exactly know, that we can never exactly know, and then tell people why we can never exactly know. Because that's the truth. If you are going to make a guess... Why not guess on the, the northern, western, and, like, west-central African countries that might have influenced tap dance? I don't really see that popping up too often. What are some of the traditional dances of what we now call, you know, Senegal, and Gambia, and Mali, Angola, Congo, and the Democratic Republic of Congo? I mean, you know, actual countries where enslaved Africans came from. If we can pinpoint the specific counties and cities and dates that that Irish immigrants came to those places and then left to come to the United States, where they went to, all of that detail, we can certainly do some of that for Africa. Why am I going on about this? Well, because tap dancers get into these long-winded arguments about the origins of tap dance and become flabbergasted when someone says something that they fundamentally disagree with, but rarely, in my experience, question how that person came to those views. If you were handed the complete tap dance book at any level of schooling when you were a kiddo and made to memorize these facts to earn a grade of merit, 
Of course they're going to internalize this information. It's a systemic problem, one that I've only scratched the surface of here in this episode, which is why this discussion is to be continued in The Hidden Histories of Tap Dance Histories, Part 2. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash gasps from a dying art form and check out our Patreon page where 50% of all patronage goes towards the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy on Chicago's beautiful South Side in the historic Harold Washington Cultural Center where I tape this program. Thank you to my Patreon subscriber, Liz Rancourt-Smith, whose generosity is endearing and appreciated and extremely motivational for me. Thank you, thank you, but most importantly, thank you. But enough gushing about Liz. It's time for our Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Yeehaw! I need to learn some, like, cowboy music for this. Anyways, on episode 73 of the Tap Love Tour, host and tap dance podfather, Travis Knights interviews tap dancer Jason Janis about the art of practice. This interview with Janice is a good companion piece to help you understand the example I make of Janice and his normal science within a paradigm theory of structured practice, although that is not what he calls it. <laughs> Let's be clear. Janice also goes into candid detail regarding his evolution through the dance, observing his mother teach tap lessons on cement floors, learning about style from the rhythm queens with their endless array of colorful tap shoes, the bittersweet moment when Harold Cromer yelled out, You're gonna be me! And why it's always a good idea to bring a pair of pants and black tap shoes with you to rehearsal. Also, after hearing Knight's opening monologue, I want everyone to join me in demanding that he release the lost episodes of the Tap Love Tour. You hear me, Knights? I want those episodes and I want them now. Baby needs his bottle, so warm them up and slap a nipple on them because I got lost where this analogy was heading. Something about <laughs> nipples and... All I'm saying is it'd be cool no, to hear the... Yeah, I got the end of this. I'm laughing myself. On episode number 79 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie asks the question, Are your students using tap journals? This episode goes over what Take a tap two. journal is. A journal for all things tap, duh. But students should use them to help them better retain information learned in class. Hillary uses herself as an example, saying that writing things down helps her remember more cerebral information, like remembering people's names, and, and that it is a great aid for students who, who will retain more information, like step names, technique notes, and history facts. Oh, I like that. Better yet, when the parents ask the kiddos, what did you learn today? And they say, nah, I don't know. Well, the parent can just crack open that journal and say, Stormy weather, 1943, what's that? And watch the child suddenly remember that they weren't just meandering around an opaque void for 45 minutes during class. Even cooler, I myself have always kept a tap journal. Though I call it a tap book. And I am on my fifth volume now. It really does help me. So now you've got two people's opinion, and one of them is a well-known tap dancer. On episode 13 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin interviews tap dancer and director and founder 
of the Chicago Tap Theater Dance Company, Mark Yonnelly. They talk about a love-hate relationship with dance competitions and Yonnelly's unique approach to telling stories tap dance. They also uh, touch upon Yonnelly's early start as a performer. They discuss jazz music, the wondrous heyday of the St. Louis Tap Festival, advice for finding your own voice, and a special shout-out to a familiar tap dancer slash guzzler of libations slash podcast host around the one hour and 12 minute mark. Who could it be? It's me. On episode one of the Real Talk Tap Talks, produced by Shuffle Live Productions, host Nico Rubio interviews one of the great masters in training, Martin Trey Dumas III. If you know Trey, well then you love Trey. So what better thing to do than learn about his life story from his early in life musical influence uh, that he got from his father, Martin Jr. Uh, and then uh, his father's band, Rasputin's Stash, but also about Trey's early days teaching at the Chicago Human Rhythm Project, Tap Festival, co-founding Mad Rhythms, touring with Riverdance, singing in a band, starting his own tap company. It's a long episode, but also a good one. So go check it out. A story about Trey's ill-fated trip to New York City and his illegitimate audition for Noise Funk is worth the cost of a mission alone. And it's free! That's all for now. Thank you, and goodbye. It's a gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art form. Wow. <laughs> peek around the corner here. Let me side-eye over here. and Okay, I think we're alone. Welcome to the bonus section. We let a little bit of time go by to, to get rid of the squares who aren't hip to the bonus section. So that leaves just you and me. Oh, yeah. You know, it really was easy to find those local minstrel show write-ups in the Chicago Tribune. And there's a whole search that goes back to, I think, like the 1880s or something like that. It would be super easy interesting to see what other people find at, at other newspapers and libraries and and this seems like a good idea for a meta search to see exactly how common small town minstrelsy was and how late it really went it makes me think about the politicians who got in trouble not too long ago because photos were found of them in blackface from college i mean these guys they may have encountered or participated in one of these small school, church, or charity minstrel shows as described in Dugan's book when they were children. I'm not justifying their actions, but it is, to me, also an obvious failure of many people and systems that this behavior by our future and currently democratically elected representatives was not thought reprehensible at any stage in their lives. Right? Still their fault, but also more people are at fault, is what I'm saying. Fun fact, 
One of those quotes I used uh, by Richard Delgado and the Imperial Scholar, the article he wrote, he's an honest-to-goodness critical race theorist. He's not actually my favorite, but he's not. that doesn't mean he's bad. So now, if someone challenges you on the subject by saying, oh yeah, name one actual critical race scholar, one work of writing, and one concept, you can now confidently say, Richard Delgado, the Imperial Scholar, uh, published from the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, and his view that inclusion of minority scholars in law writing is a good and necessary thing. That's all for now. See you next time.